A reading from Romans chapter 15, starting with verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up and one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you all on this second week of Advent. I am just so thankful for all who led this community so beautiful, beautifully last week. Um, while I was in Tulsa with my family over Thanksgiving holiday, um, I listened to David's sermon from last week, and I just think he led us so beautifully and uh, so much wisdom there, and I think was just such a great way for us to enter into the Advent season. I also want to say thanks to Tyler and Hannah, um, also to Ian and to Sarah Carpenter, who helped lead parts of that service, and it was just a real blessing. So thank you guys for that. It was wonderful. Um, 
In Advent, we do a few things. So we look back at Advent, all right? We look back and we join with Israel. We join with the hopes and fears of all the years that were met in Jesus Christ. That's like a song, right? We long with Israel for this uh, restoration that happens, this redemption that happened in Jesus Christ. And that first coming, that Christ coming into our world in the form of um, of a little baby is called the Adventus Redemptionus. Okay, I'm not great with Latin, so here, Adventus Redemptionus. But we're also in Advent reminded of God's presence now. Okay, so we look back, Adventus Redemptionus, then also we're reminded of God's presence with us now. So we anticipate what God wants to do in our lives today, in word and in sacrament, as God moves in us. That is called Adventus Sanctificationus. All right, there we go. Adventus Sanctificationus. All right, so we look back. We also look in our lives present now. God wants to do something in you in this Advent season, in your family, in your lives, okay? And then finally, we look forward to the day of Christ's second coming when he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead and all will be made right. That's Adventus Glorificamus. Adventus Glorificamus, okay? So we look back. We're also aware of what God's doing in our lives now. We anticipate that. And then we look forward. It's all anticipation. So all of the texts that we get during Advent are anticipation texts, longing for Christ's presence, longing for God to move. And you'll notice if you're around here that we're not given the Christmas story texts yet. So much, anything that kind of rumors Christianity in our season right now in December, usually you're gonna hear about baby Jesus, okay? Eight pounds, seven ounces, right? No, Uh, (laughs) no, you're gonna hear about Mary and the shepherds, right? Which is all great and that's all coming. But in the church in this season, we actually are given texts that anticipate that story. The story's not quite here yet. We're anticipating that story. We're given texts of judgment, of revealing, of promise, and of warning. Those are our texts today. In fact, in our family, we're trying to kind of push back on the consumerism of Christmas, on Christmas coming earlier than it's supposed to come a little bit, by even in our house, trying to decorate our house. I'm not saying everybody needs to do this. We've just chosen to do this. Decorating our house slowly, kind of little by little, right? Just waiting, kind of anticipating for Christmas to come. Advent is not flashbang. Advent is one candle at a time, right? In fact, one season, um, one thing that um, we might not be aware of And so when Christmas Day happens, which is December 25th, obviously, we've been anticipating this whole time, but in the church calendar, Christmas has 12 days to it. So it starts Christmas Day, and then it goes for 12 days. That's that whole song, 12 Days of Christmas, right? It starts Christmas Day, and it goes for 12 days. Those 12 days are supposed to be celebration, right? Partying, rejoicing. So we anticipate, and then Christmas comes. One thing that you can do to help, help yourself with this is uh, when you put, if you have a nativity scene in your house, put up the nativity scene, but put the magi somewhere else in the house, okay? And then as Advent comes, because I know you want to do this because you guys geek out like I do about this stuff, right? Um, is you move the magi closer and closer, right? And they're moving. And then and when Epiphany comes, which is 12 days after Christmas, that's when the Magi show up, okay? So, yeah. Anyway, it's cool. Do it. Um, do it. You'll be more holy if you do it. No. <laughs> but before we celebrate, we're called to anticipate. 
That's what Advent is about, all right? The prophecy that we hear today in Isaiah is a promise for Israel. And if you read the book of Isaiah in chapter six, one of the things that's happened is God told Isaiah that he would cut the people down. The people would be cut down, God's people. The great families of Israel are like trees. And in Isaiah chapter six, it's prophesied that they would be destroyed, that there would be a deforestation of Israel, in other words. And after the trees were cut down, all that would remain, chapter six says, are stumps. Okay, so when you cut down trees, there would be stumps of trees and that's it. Well, in chapter 11, what we just read this morning, we're told that out of one of these stumps, the same tree that produced King David, out of one of these stumps, the family of Jesse will come a new ruler, a branch, a new ruler. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It says wisdom, counsel, knowledge, fear of the Lord. In other words, in a world that is confusing, he will be the judge. How many of us know that in a world that's confusing, we need someone to sort it out? (laughs) We need someone to make it clear. And it says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then it goes on, it's kind of confusing. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. Why not? Well, the word delight in Hebrew is really interesting. It's the same word as the word to smell. To delight is to smell. So this person who delights in in the fear of the Lord, this king, this ruler, is the one who smells the fear of the Lord. (laughs) He smells what's right. He smells what's good, okay? Um, And this may refer back to religious practices where God was said to delight in pleasant odors. We don't know the meaning of all this word completely. But I think it's interesting. The image is one of the promised king who can sniff out what's right in the world. Someone who can go into the world and go, something's not right, but that's right. That's the right thing. In a place where you can't tell otherwise. In other words, in a world of fake news, (laughs) this guy will cut through the BS, right? He will sniff it out. Some priests of mine, uh, friends of mine told me this story this week of a few weeks ago, they received an email from a person in their church who asked them to do a crop blessing, okay? And this is an old tradition. It's um, not done as much anymore, but the idea is the priest goes and prays over a person's crop, which in a lot of situations, like on farms, is their livelihood, right? So it's praying for God's sustaining, for God's blessing. It's a really uh, beautiful thing that God will continue to sustain them and work through this crop. But these priests were a bit confused by who this person was and didn't know what kind of crop they were talking about. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what, what is the crop? Like asking more questions as you would. And after a little bit more prodding, they found out that the crop was medicinal marijuana, okay? Um, It was one of those distributary kind of places, and this guy, it was his sustenance. And so he he wanted them to come and bless it, and so they did. (laughs) So they showed up, and they blessed the crop. But along with the blessing that they did came a smell, okay? So they did the blessing, and they had a very distinguishable smell on them as they left. And their next appointment was to take communion to an old lady who had been bedridden and unable to attend church, and they were serving her communion. So they get in the car, and they're realizing what's about to happen. (laughs) They're going to go to this lady's house and serve her communion, and they have a very distinguishable smell. So they carried this with them. They ended up calling this lady, just warning her, here's what's going on, <laughs> right? Here's the situation and, and what we're facing and all of that. But they, um, 
when I was talking to them about this text this week, they said, yeah, we might have had kind of the smell of evil on us. <laughs> In our culture, we have downgraded the uh, sense of smell. We don't really think about smell as kind of a primary driver for us anymore. And in a court of law, someone is more likely to believe you if you say you saw something than as if you went into a situation and said, I don't know, that just smelled kind of fishy. That doesn't really carry a lot of weight in a court of law. But if you saw something, then that means something different. But in the ancient world, it was almost opposite. If you smelled something, it was a significant way of telling what was going on. In fact, there was a smell of evil. And there are even places today in our culture, in churches and in mosques, um, not in our culture, but around the world, where there are people who are designed to stand outside of the church or mosque and smell if anybody's carrying the smell of evil on them and then not let them in, okay? It's this way of sniffing out what's right, sniffing out what is true. And I want to suggest today that we live in a world of a variety of smells, a variety of scents. A variety of things that some are good and some aren't good and some may be good and may not be good and it gets muddled. And in our culture, we get used to certain scents, certain stories, certain patterns, and some of them aren't good for us. They aren't good scents, but we've become accustomed to them. They become part of who we are. We we don't even notice them anymore. And the point here is that when Jesus comes, he will know and he will smell clearly what is right and what is wrong. In a murky and musty world, we can trust that, that Jesus knows what's going on, even if we don't know what's going on, and he will sniff it out. The text that prophesies here about Jesus says that righteousness will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. In other words, he will wear what is right and what is just. That's who God is. Now, I don't know about you, but Sometimes it's hard for me to know in every situation the exact right thing to do. Things are murky and they're tough. I go into a certain direction and it doesn't work out. It doesn't feel right after a while. I try something else unexpected and it clicks and go, yeah, maybe that is right. Sometimes it's tough to sort through the mess of our world, through global politics and cultural issues. Like what's right here? And the good news is that the pressure is ultimately not on us. That all we need to do is to turn to and trust the one who wears justice, the one who sniffs it out and be faithful to him. And this may sound cliche, but I still think when you're trying to figure out what the next best step is in your life, the right thing to do, the right thing to say is, which one of these looks more like Jesus? I still think that's the right pattern and the right thing to do. When this king rules, Isaiah says, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, the little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain." This idea is that things could actually be together in harmony. Things that we consider predator and prey are no longer in God's new world. The snake and the baby can be together? Seriously? That's crazy talk, but that's God's new world. Those things that are at odds with each other are somehow put right, are in harmony with each other. And the prophet says, everything you know, when this king comes, everything that you know will be turned upside down and there will be peace. 
Harmony is also a prominent theme in our Romans text. Paul is challenging the church with the reality that the God who they serve will lead them to live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So in other words, Christians are people of welcome. We're a welcoming people. We are an open-handed people. Now, I want to suggest there is a difference between welcome and tolerance. We've come to think of tolerance as a value in our culture. And so we challenge Christians and ourselves to become more tolerant. And I understand that because there's this idea that we live in a diverse world and so we need to be more open. And so we use this word tolerant. But if you think about that word, how would you like to be the one who's tolerated? (laughs) Like that's such a low bar, right? Like like I wanna live in a world where people just tolerate my existence. (laughs) The Christian story is way better than tolerance. It's welcome. Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian. He says, in a diverse world, we don't need to be tolerant. We need to be humble Christians. We need to recognize we don't have all the answers. And so we welcome others because they're part of God's plan in the world too. If we're tolerant, we might say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, but that's just my opinion. That's such an odd way of speaking, if you think about it. Jesus is Lord over the whole world. I know that, but don't worry too much about it. (laughs) No, like that's world altering, that's world changing. But humility is different than tolerance. Christians are able to be humble because we worship a crucified savior. So that means what we do is we invite difference. We invite challenge. We invite other people into our world with love and with welcome. And we don't have to lay down what we believe in order to do so. We are welcoming, not just tolerant. I hope that makes sense this morning. Paul's situation that he's speaking to is actually within the church. And he's talking about bringing together Jews and Gentiles. In fact, when you read the New Testament, this idea of Jews and Gentiles kind of living together in community is like the backdrop of the whole thing. So when you read the New Testament, like read it through that lens. Like think about, they're all dealing with this fact. How do Jews and Gentiles who come from completely different cultural backgrounds, how do they eat together? They have different like food laws. How do they spend time together? How do they worship the same God? Like what does that look like? And so what he calls them is he's not calling them to be the same. And he's not calling them to tolerate each other. (laughs) He's calling them to be different under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Just as wolves and lambs are brought together in Isaiah, Jews and Gentiles are brought together here. The church is supposed to be the model for the new world that's promised in Isaiah 11. In the church, we are bound together not by affinity, which means not like we all like the same things. We're not bound together by culture or by ethnicity. We're bound together by the one who is Lord of all. Unfortunately, if the church is supposed to be a model for this kind of harmony, this kind of welcome, we're not doing a very good job with it. And that's sad. You've heard the stories of churches splitting over the color of the carpet, right? That's a stereotype. But it's actually, I've been in church life long enough to know that kind of stuff's really true. (laughs) Like it actually happens. It's not just a stereotype. Many of our squabbles with each other are ridiculous. As I've stepped into this priesthood thing, I'm acutely aware that in our church, we've got to be so careful that the practice of our traditions that I do believe are so important, and there's a reason why we're stepping into it, 
but that they're always welcoming and never divisive. You know what I mean? Like that the traditions are something we invite people into, not things that we create barriers on or separation on. It's so critical. And for us in our everyday lives, I wonder what we might ask ourselves, in what ways we might embody what it means to be a people of welcome. What would it mean in your life to be a person of welcome or part of the people of welcome in your life? Now, for those of you who are more introverted, that may be freaking you out, that idea. What does that mean? Because the only way I think about welcome is people that are, hey, how's it going? You know, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. But welcome is not just that. Welcome is not just on the surface. Welcome is, in what ways can I celebrate the people who I encounter? to welcome them as being created in the image of God and loved by him. What does that look like for you? Welcome comes in many shapes and sizes. Christ's lordship means that the most unlikely people are welcomed at this table, that wolves and lambs are together, that Jews and Gentiles are together, that we're invited to the same table. In our gospel reading, we see this guy, John the Baptist, And this text tells us it had been prophesied long ago that he would come to prepare the way for the Lord. So John is pointing to something that's coming and he's saying, prepare the way, all right? Make the path. This message has been part of the consciousness of the people of God since Isaiah first said it, but it's coming true now. And John ate locust and honey. So that was his his diet. Now I was in a restaurant in Tulsa where they served green eggs and ham, right? Kind of a playful thing on that, on that story. And so I had a lot of fun with my dad jokes because my sister ordered it and I was able to say, do you like it in a box? Do you like it with a fox? Do you like it here or there? And, and then everybody's rolling their eyes at me by the end of the meal, but that's just how it worked. So if they're serving green eggs and ham, I thought I had this great idea. And those of you that, that are in the restaurant world can totally take this, but like, what about locusts and wild honey? Could that be the new trendy dish? On a, I feel like you could see it on a restaurant in Five Points, locusts and wild honey, and you could do something creative. It's all about presentation. So if you, if you do that, I think it could work. John's call here is one of judgment. He says, wake up. And I want to suggest that the way that we've been thinking about judgment in the church and oftentimes is is not helpful because we think of it as bad news. Judgment is bad news. Judgment is good news. The good news is that God tells you to wake up. He calls you to wake up out of the stupor of the things that you've believed, out of the sleep that you've been in. If God didn't call us to wake up, if he didn't call us towards judgment, if he didn't shed light on things, that would be bad news. Judgment is good news. It means those things that are broken can be healed. John was part of this political group, and it was called the Essenes or the Qumran community. And this was a group that believed that Jewish society was so off track, they were so far gone, that it was useless to try to change society. So it was better to just leave society and start your own utopian community. So that's what the Qumran community or the Essenes did. They went into the desert, and in fact, the most recent major discovery of scripture that we found archaeologically had been copied by this community, the Qumran community. But John is different, because even though he was part of the Qumran community far away, something compelled him to come back into society. Something called him to call others. Desert and wilderness are important themes in scripture. 
The children of Israel found themselves in the wilderness between the time of slavery in Egypt and the time of being in the promised land. The desert is where God's people receive their mission, their law, their calling. The desert is where you go when God is preparing you. In many ways, Israel was a desert people. They were defined by their time and their mission in the wilderness. And John is this desert guy who's been called by God out of the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. Make way, make way, he says. There weren't a lot of roads in the world at this time. Uh, Rome had built some roads. There was an intricate road system that was new, but it was nothing like we have today, obviously. But in the ancient world, when a king or an emperor said he was coming to your village or your town, what the people would do is they would give all that they had, not just their resources, but all of their body, and they would build a road. They would spend all of their time obliterating themselves in order to build a road to make way for the king or the emperor who was coming. And John's entire mission is basically making that road. He is giving up himself to make a path for the king. It says John is baptizing them. Now, John's baptism was different from the baptism we go through in light of resurrection. John is inviting them to practice this thing that we call mikvah in the uh, Jewish world. It was a way of reminding you or literally immersing you in God's story. If you were a Gentile who was captivated by the story of God's people, you would go through this kind of baptism. And there was a reason for that. Like the Jewish people had this one story and it was the story of the crossing of the Red Sea that was really significant. It defined who they were. We are the people who God allowed to cross the sea. Like that's what we're defined by. God saved us. We had Pharaoh on one side and we had the sea on the other and God saved us through the sea. So the belief was if you were a Gentile, you didn't have that story as part of your bones, right? You didn't have that in your history or in your ancestry. So what do you need to do? You need to go through a Red Sea experience. Like you need to go through a kind of baptism that steps you into that story, right? But also the Jewish people were called to go through it because John would say, is basically saying to them, you've forgotten your story. You've forgotten the story of God's grace. You've forgotten who you are. So you need to be baptized. You need to be reminded of this reality. You need to go through this Red Sea experience. So what happens is he's out there baptizing these people. This mikvah is going on. And then there's some Jewish leaders who come forward for baptism. We want to be baptized too. What does he say? You brood of vipers. That's his response to them. There's a... Um, lady uh, author who I read named Fleming Rutledge. And she said it would be great. This, this verse would be great to have in an advent calendar, okay? So instead of a piece of chocolate with a cute little picture of the nativity, on day one of the calendar is John the Baptist jumping out at you and calling you brood of vipers. Or, or maybe he just says, Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. Right? <laughs> Why does he call him that? Why does he call him brood of vipers? Well, he's telling them, you think you're ready for the kingdom of God because it's your family story. You think you have it in your bones, but you're not ready. Because in the case of the leaders, they're corrupt. They've kept people outside of the community through their stringent interpretation of the law. Repent was a political term. It means change your outlook and your political perspective. Lay it down and take on this new thing. 
John was proclaiming this at a time where there were all these different groups who had different ideas of how to deal with the Roman Empire. And some of them were just accommodating to the empire. Some were violent. John is saying to all of that, you're not ready. There's something new that's coming. God's new community embodies welcome. It anticipates the harmony of God's new world. And if you're not living towards that, if you're not living towards that welcome and that harmony and you're not prepared for God's new world, you need to repent. You can't live into a kingdom of welcome and justice through separation and violence, he's saying. Don't cling to the fact that this story may be part of your ancestry. If God wanted to, he could raise up stones and call them his family. Don't use that as a position of privilege that keeps you from admitting your sins. But instead, he calls them, produce fruit worthy of repentance. Allow God's story to transform you in such a way that your life shows it. Of course, the first step to that is admitting your own brokenness. And that was something that the Jewish leaders struggled to do. Admit that you too are a sinner. And then John uses two really intense metaphors. The ax is about to hit the root of the tree, okay? So it's about to be caught down. And the fire is about to come and burn away the chaff, all right? So you've got this ax is coming at the tree. And then, um, in other words, get ready for God's new kingdom. Orient yourselves towards the true character and nature of God because that's the only thing that will last. And anything in your life that is not of God is gonna be chopped down and burned away. Merry Christmas, All is calm, all is bright, right? No. Um, Now, the beauty of Advent is that God is so merciful, he's so loving, that he splashes cold water in our face. (laughs) He says, the stories you're believing are not true. They're fake news. Thinking about money as the answer is not gonna do it. Thinking that getting people to like you is the ticket to life, nah, that's gonna be burned away. Thinking that that substance is gonna make you happy, no, it's not gonna last. Now, it's easy when we read the gospels to think about other people. Think about other groups of people that we despise. And we think about, yeah, they need to straighten up, right? Yeah, those Democrats, man, they need to get their life together. Those Republicans, man, they need to shaping up. You know, man, those, yeah, those people in the prosperity gospel, man, they gotta, they gotta fix that, right? But Fleming Rutledge again says, most of us figure out ways to excuse ourselves from whatever it is Jesus is condemning. <laughs> Our friends are not brood of vipers. Judgment is for some other group. Certainly it isn't for the most prominent leaders in our community, those who exceed everyone else in righteousness. Oops. That's a description of the Pharisees. (laughs) What parts of our lives and what parts of our world are not yet transformed by grace? I hope you hear me in this. Like, Judgment is always in light of God's grace. The last thing I want us to hear today when we hear repent is to hear some moralistic kind of thing. Like, Like fix that behavior in your life. It's not behavior modification. Because actually, I don't even think that works. Like, like if you go and just tell somebody, hey, just be better, do that. That doesn't ever work, right? The way to true change in our lives, the way to see fruit that produces repentance is through yielding to God's grace. 
trusting that we're not enough in and of ourselves, that we need God, we need his healing because that's who has created us and who loves us. What are the things in our lives that are not bearing the fruit of repentance? What are the things that are still in darkness and haven't yet hit the light? Where have we allowed cultural differences or hostilities or prejudice to separate us from other people? Where have we been slow to forgive? The announcement today is that the king is coming. And his kingship is not a little add-on to our lives that we can just tack on the end of an average, ordinary American life. It means repenting. It means a whole new political orientation. By political, I mean way of viewing the world, right? C.S. Lewis said, fallen man, fallen human, is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a a rebel who must lay down his arms. Today, God is calling us to give up. (laughs) We give up our morality and the badges that we think we wear for it, the way that we've said, hey, I'm a good person because I did X, Y, and Z. We give up our false idols, our counterfeit gods, the narratives that tell us how the world works. The light is growing this Advent. The way is being prepared. The paths are straightening. May we greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.